as James Allen, who at the time was working for ITV for their Formula One coverage, said at the time, quote, Well, it's an illustration of how the teams in Formula One simply can't agree, even in the most extreme circumstances. The FIA didn't seem to want help either. Formula One should be deeply ashamed of itself today. It lost all semblance of common sense here at Indianapolis. Pinch me. Did I really see this? Unquote. This is the story of one of the most farcical weekends Formula One has ever seen. Now the idea for this podcast came about when I hinted about it in my previous podcast where I was talking about the race that introduced me and hooked my attention on Formula One, the 1996 Japanese Grand Prix, the race where Damon Hill became world champion. And I said that I might do a podcast about the 2005 US Grand Prix. Well, as you can see by the fact, well, listen by the fact that uh, you're listening to my voice now, you will know that I have decided to take the plunge and talk about one of the most farcical races in F1 history. So, without further ado, let's get into it. To adapt a quote from the 32nd President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 2005 US Grand Prix is a weekend that will live in infamy. It was a race weekend where a technical issue with tyres blew up into a political row. How so, you may ask? Well, let's go deeper into this. For starters, Formula One has always been seemingly Eurocentric. The heart, the home of the sport has always centred around continental Europe. So countries like the United Kingdom, France and Italy, and Monaco as well, of course, let's not forget that. They're all considered to be crown jewel events and locations in Formula One. The United States of America, however, has had a bit of a checkered history with Formula One. Because it seemed like no matter where they tried, nothing stuck. They had races at Sebring in, in Florida, Riverside in California, and various other tracks like Indianapolis. I'm talking about the Oval Track because for the first 10 years from 1950 to 1960, 
the Indy 500 was considered as a round of the world championship, even though there was no crossover. And there were street tracks in Long Beach, Detroit, Phoenix, Dallas, and even a car park layout at Caesars Palace, Las Vegas, Nevada. And prior to the 2020 season, 1982 was the last year in which a country hosted three different Grand Prix in a calendar year. And you could probably not even guess about which country it was that had that distinction. Yes, it was the United States, with races respectively in Long Beach, Detroit and Las Vegas, at different points of the season, the United States hosted three Grand Prix in the year of 1982, with the latter actually staging the finale of the season in the year in which Keke Rosberg and John Watson battled each other for the World Championship. By the year 2000, after nine years since F1's disastrous last foray to a street circuit in the United States in Phoenix, Arizona, the the ones that <clears throat> excuse me the the powers that be in the sport made what seemed like a highly logical decision. Agree a deal with the owner of Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Tony George, to stage a Grand Prix at the most famous racetrack in the world and the second oldest racetrack in history and the oldest surviving racetrack. The F1 layout of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway differed drastically from the famous oval used for the already mentioned Indy 500. For starters, they run in a completely different direction. The road course at Indianapolis runs clockwise. In other words, facing the opposite direction to the way the Indy cars run. So, pit exit for the Grand Prix layout is pit entrance for the oval. So, just before turn four of the oval the road course branches off and heads to the infield and the track has a wide variety of fast and slow corners including potential opportunities to overtake if someone was brave enough but the biggest attention catcher for enthusiasts anyway was the final corner of the Grand Prix layout. The only oval corner on the Grand Prix layout, which on the Grand Prix layout was turn 13. The sight of F1 cars with at the time V10 engines powering round the oval corner at full speed accelerating onto the main straight caused fans to turn out in droves to watch them round that famous 9.2 degree banked 
corner. And because the tyre company supplying F1 at the time, Bridgestone, took no chances, it went off without a hitch. Michael Schumacher ended up winning the race, taking a big step towards his third world championship and his first for Ferrari, with Rubens Barrichello second and Heinz Harold Frentzen third. So you might expect that the teams and drivers and tyre engineers knew all about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Grand Prix layout by the time 2005 rolled around. However, there was a catch. However, that was not entirely the case. Because between 2000 and 2005, a tyre war developed. This tyre war was fought between the already mentioned Bridgestone and the company vying for superiority against them, Michelin. Now the tyre war in question had been not that explosive as such in the sense that the worst that would happen would be one team driver and tyre uh, combination would emerge dominant given the conditions and the layout of the track. It had less to do with driver skill and more to do with the tyres working on that particular occasion. In case you didn't notice, I'm not in favour of tyre wars, I have to say. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So, the idea of a tyre war is to encourage the companies to run as soft tyres as they possibly can to try and get an edge over their competitors. The problem is, the softer the tyre, the more it wears out more quickly, and conversely, the harder the tyre, the slower it is, but at the same time, it lasts longer. But And where does this come into Indianapolis? Well, it partially has to do with that aforementioned 9.2 degree banked turn 13. Or more, more specifically, one small part of it. You see, between the 2004 and 2005 seasons, the owners of Indianapolis Motor Speedway include, had organised for the track to be resurfaced. The oval track, that is, to be resurfaced. And to eliminate bumps on the track that can result from resurfacing, they decided to diamond grind the newly laid asphalt smooth. Which is great. It means that there's a more consistent platform for the car to run over. The downside is that it makes the asphalt more abrasive. Much more abrasive than it had been previously. And Michelin Tire Company, there's no two ways about it, we're in trouble. The problems started on the Friday of the 2005 US Grand Prix. Because Ralph Schumacher, driving for Toyota, had a left-hand rear tyre failure 
as his Toyota was going through turn 13 accelerating onto the main straight. Bearing in mind he had an accident at the same corner at pretty much the same place the previous year and injured his back in the process causing him to miss several races he was ordered to miss the 2005 race uh, on medical advice doctor's orders in other words and the person who stepped up the plate in his place was Toyota's test driver XBAR driver Ricardo Zonta although there was something clearly wrong as already mentioned with Michelin's tyres because Zonta too had a tyre failure of the left rear tyres albeit he had his failure on the infield so he was all his car did was go into the gravel hold that thought for a moment I must provide some context at the time F1 had regulations that allowed teams that finished 5th or lower in the Constructors Championship to run a third car in free practice to gain extra mileage and, and hence reduce the deficit supposedly to the teams higher up the grid and Toyota was one of those teams But anyway, it wasn't just Toyota that had a problem. Every single car on Michelin tyres had varying degrees of signs of a potential tyre failure. And there's no two ways about it. The sport got itself into a bit of a tizzy. However, before we go into the specifics of uh, this tizzy that the teams found themselves in, as you listen to what unfolded that weekend in June 2005, try and think about how you would have dealt with this catastrophe. Because it's easy to criticise in retrospect. However, Try to see all the perspectives as I dispassionately talk about what happened. So as already mentioned, the Michelin teams, the tyres supplied by the Michelin Tyre Company, I should say, were in trouble. Why was Bridgestone seemingly unaffected? Was it luck? Was it guessing the right amount of stress they needed to put through the tyres in order to have them survive? Well, not really. You see, at the time, Firestone supplied tyres for the Indy Racing League, whose series ran the Indianapolis 500 at the time. Where does this come in, you may ask? Well, the company that owns Firestone is Bridgestone. So Bridgestone had access to the data about how much more abrasive the surface 
through turn 13 was going to be. They made adjustments, not only for the Indy 500, to ensure that that went off without any issues. And side note, Britain's own Dan Weldon won that, Grand, won that race. I nearly said Grand Prix there, silly me. And uh, they made, in turn, adjustments for the tyres they were producing for the Grand Prix. And there was another reason why Michelin was in trouble and why Bridgestone had all the cards in their favour that particular weekend. For the 2005 season only, Formula One unwisely introduced a regulation that mandated that one set of tyres last for both single lap qualifying and all 190 miles, give or take, of the Grand Prix. So one set of tyres for the whole race. Bear in mind, the Michelin tyres were failing roughly 10 to 15 laps into the stint. Even if Michelin didn't have uh, to make their tyres last for the whole race, they simply wouldn't have enough tyres to uh, make them do the full race, let alone make them do 73 laps of the race. 73 laps being the uh, total distance in terms of number of laps for the US Grand Prix per, as per the uh, Indianapolis road course. But anyway, this put the teams on Michelin tyres in an incredibly difficult situation. Because on Saturday, after they had uh, chosen their tyres for that weekend as per regulation they went out to qualify knowing that their tires would not be suitable for the race so the race had a bit of a strange bit of an interesting look even by 2005 standards for the starting grid we had toyota on pole position with Jano Trulli. Second place was second place appropriately enough in the championship at the time, Kimi Raikkonen. And third was Jensen Button, who had been on pole for the previous race in Canada. Where was the leading Bridgestone runner, you may ask? Well, in fifth position we have the reigning world champion and reigning seven-time world champion at that, Michael Schumacher, in fifth position in the F2005 Ferrari. And the championship leader at that time, Fernando Alonso, was in sixth position. So qualifying happened, and there were reinsurances that the race will go ahead as scheduled. However, the curveball came at six o'clock local time on Sunday morning, when final confirmation came through that the Michelin tyres were not safe for the race, 
and Michelin backed their teams into a corner in a sense by issuing a press release saying that they cannot, under any circumstances, race on those tyres. So, discussions were held. Should the teams go slowly round the final corner, whatever that means? No, because there was a huge grey area in the sense that how slow is slow? Because you can't have 14 cars driving uh, about 50 miles an hour slower round that corner while the other six are hurtling round it full speed. So, could the Michelin tyres, could the Michelin runners change tyres every lap? Well, every uh, 15 laps or so. As we already mentioned, no, because Michelin simply didn't have enough tyres in order to even cover this. Should the Michelin runners run through the pit lane every single lap so as to reduce stress on the tyres? No. Because for those that have worked in motorsport before, they will know that the pit lane is amongst the most dangerous working environments anywhere in the world. So having 14 cars running through the pit lane every single lap, as well as some pitting, some not, and the six Bridgestone runners pitting for fuel when they needed to, that is totally unworkable. So, could a more reasonable compromise have been reached? Like building a chicane, for example, a temporary chicane just before the final corner to uh, slow the cars down to, again, reduce the stress of the tyres through that last corner? Well, logic would say yes. However, at the time, it required unanimous agreement by all the teams to have this happen. However, as hinted at the start of this podcast, depressingly, that wasn't ha- that wasn't forthcoming. The problem: one team disagreed. One team was unwilling to give up the advantage that they had because their tyres were built properly for the much more abrasive track surface than had been expected. Ferrari. Because of Ferrari's intransigence, it meant that there was no prospect of a temporary chicane being built between turns 12 and 13. To make matters worse, the FIA themselves, and through them, President Max Mosley, they they argued that any alterations to the track would violate their rules regarding circuit homologation. In other words, they couldn't do changes with the FIA's blessing. And they threatened to back out of the race weekend if the teams went ahead of it anyway. So, depressingly, it came to an impasse. Even minutes before the race started, there were discussions between 
Bernie Eccleston, the teams, the drivers, about what they should do. And no agreement was forthcoming. So while 20 cars were on the grid for the start of the formation lap, car after car on Michelin tyres pulled into the pit lane to withdraw from the race. While this was happening, the six Bridgestone runners, Ferrari, Jordan and Minardi, took their place on the virtually empty grid except for themselves. And the start procedure started as normal. The five red lights became illuminated one by one and then went out, went out and the race began. And other than one Jordan smoking at the start of the race, not cigarettes, mind you, uh, gearbox smoke, as it turned out, or an overfill from the engine, I don't know. But other than that, and a small incident between Michael Schumacher and Rubens Barrichello on lap 51, as Schumacher was exiting the pit lane from his second stop, the race was uh, a non-factor. Michael Schumacher went on to record his only win of 2005. Rubens Barrichello equaled his best finish of 2005 with second place. And Jordan driver Thiago Monteiro became the first Portuguese driver ever to stand on the podium with third place. Even though he admitted that uh, it was a weird race. Even before the race was 10 laps in, understandably, fans were leaving the track in droves, disgusted about what happened, how it had come to this. They were completely in the dark about what was going on and were less than impressed that what they had forked out hundreds of dollars sometimes thousands of dollars to attend what should have been one of the most prestigious races of the year on the Formula One calendar to be presented with a six-car farce. It was embarrassing for everyone involved. The big question, could this have been avoided? The short answer is yes. When it became clear that the Michelin tyres were unsafe, there could have been the possibility of postponing the race until Michelin had produced the tyres that were capable of withstanding the loads imposed by the new track surface for 73 laps. In a, but there, and there were other ways of preventing this fuss from happening as well. Had the FIA been far more flexible about the regulations, realising that this was a force majeure situation, that nobody had brought themselves into this deliberately, least of all Michelin, 
because while Bridgestone had access to the data provided by the new track surface, Michelin only went in with existing data from the old track surface. So because they didn't have access to that new data that was crucial to them calculating how strong to make the tyres, they didn't have that access to it and went into it completely blind. Equally, if the powers that be had taken the decision at the very least to find some measure to allow a full grid to take place that day, it would have avoided, it would have avoided the PR disaster that resulted. The sport wouldn't have been set back decades by teams and, and the FIA's intransigence over regulations. As already mentioned, there are different people who blame different people and things on what happened that weekend in June 2005. Who do I hold responsible? Well, for me, the blame goes right to the top. Max Mosley. Although the defence he gave said that if they had changed the track an American judge wouldn't sit well with an accident that occurred in that changed section, I would argue that if he had forced the teams on Michelin tyres to start the race and there had been an accident caused by a tyre that had failed, that same American judge he was trying to relate to would argue that they had known the FIA, I should say, had no, had been made aware of the dodgy tyres, and they were negligent. They would have been negligent in any uh, injury or even death that would have resulted from a car hitting the outside wall, endangering the lives of marshals, spectators, or even the drivers themselves, because those walls on the oval are more than an F1 car can take. I mean, as, as mentioned earlier, Ralph Schumacher injured his back in a uh, tyre blowout that occurred at that same corner in 2004. It was sheer miracle that he was uninjured when a, an, another tyre failed at the same corner in a similar way a year later. The FIA, in other words would have been banged to rights as far as I'm concerned. So the blame lies at the FIA's door as far as I'm concerned. And it shouldn't have been down to Michelin to organise compensation for those fans that didn't see a race. And as David Coulthard said after the first lap of the race when being interviewed, quote, Mature adults were unable to find a solution to allow us to put on the show that everyone wants to see in Formula 1. And it's a very sad day for the sport, I have to say. Unquote.
So there we have it. One of the most farcical races in F1 history. Summed up in this podcast. To end it on a more light-hearted note. Indianapolis Motor Speedway did stage two more Grand Prix. This time with a full complement of cars taking the start in 2006 and 2007. Uh, but regrettably did not renew its contract. But, as we all know, it wasn't the end for F1 and the USA. Because five years after that last Grand Prix at Indianapolis, the Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas, opened in 2012 and has become a firm favourite of teams, drivers and fans of the sport since it hosted its first Grand Prix in 2012. Long may that racetrack continue to be on the schedule, as far as I'm concerned. It's earned its place. And it's a shame about Indianapolis, but we can only hope that with plans to add more races to the United States, that they don't make the ill-advised decision of having short, having unsuitable street tracks, or even, God help us, more car parks. Oh wait, no, they're going to Miami. Never mind, but we can only we can only hope for the best. And the next podcast I'll do will be my favourite, will be me talking about my favourite Grand Prix of all time. I'll leave you to speculate in terms of what that is. But uh, until then, you'll hear from me next time.